Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. 77 WABC and Tumble Towers Foundation present 9-11, 22 years later. Now, here's Curtis Slewa. Leading into this commemoration, I listened to uh, what was the advertisement, advertisement for the protest against CCNY anti-Semitism, which is tomorrow at 5.30 on the corner of 42nd and 3rd outside of the Chancellor's office of CCNY. Uh, I'm going to be there. Look, they were good enough to advertise on WABC, and it is uh, a great reason to turn out. Uh, Ina Vernikoff, the city councilwoman from Cheapside Bay, was urging that the um, chancellor of CCNY come in before the end of the year. And have, there were hearings on the acceptance of anti-Semitism on the campuses of CCNY. He would not respond. Eric Adams, the mayor, would not respond until suddenly CCNY students turned their back at him on the law school when he came in to give them salutations and greetings. So uh, come on out there. Be there tomorrow, 530 Tuesday, 42nd and 3rd Avenue. The protest against rampant CCNY anti-Semitism. I'll be there. I hope all of you will be there outside of the chancellor's office. But let me make mention... um, Anti-Semitism was at the core of the first World Trade Center attack that was not successful on February 26, 1993. The architect, Ramzi Youssef, who uh, was on the lam from the Philippines where he was plotting further attacks on the World Trade Center, this time with airplanes. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, his cousin, eventually became the salesperson who brought the plans to um, Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda, and then they had a deadly agreement on that. But when Ramsey Youssef was flown back, and he's now out at Florence, Colorado, the Supermax, they flew him over the World Trade Center site that did not implode at that point. And they asked him why. Why the World Trade Center site? And Ramsey Youssef said, without hesitating, because the most Jews in New York City would be there at the financial epicenter of New York City and the world. Now, that was the first World Trade Center attack. And the uh, motivation for it was the uh, Santa Claus hat-wearing imam of hate, who was uh, a character that had been recruited by the CIA. Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, the evil one, was the head of the Muslim Brotherhood who ordered the assassination of Anwar Sadat because of the peace treaty he signed on to with Menachem Begin and most importantly with Jimmy Carter. 
Anwar Sadat went back to Egypt and eventually was assassinated by the Muslim Brotherhood on the orders of Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, the evil one who became the inspiration for the first attack of the World Trade Center. As he would give sermons on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn and in Jersey City, in which in Arabic he would say, Kill Satan, America, and the little Satan, Israel, over and over and over, and he was a CIA agent. Yeah, criminals in action. That's why I call them criminals in action, because they recruited him to fight and raise money for the Mujahideen against the Soviet Union that had invaded and took over Afghanistan, Brezhnev versus Jimmy Carter at that time. You see, we came full circle. But what I want to talk about now on this anniversary, 23rd anniversary of the attack on 9-11 is the one area that little, if any, attention was given to. It wasn't at what became the world's largest crematorium, the pit, where the actual attack here in New York City took place. Actually, uh, the debris would be barged over to the Fresh Kills landfill that had been closed with the election of Rudy Giuliani. And the agreement of then borough president Guy Malinari, who had been originally the congressman, to close what was the world's largest open-air dump and would have continued to be so had David Dinkins won that election. So in the aftermath of the attack, everything, all particuli, uh, steel girders, flattened cars, flattened firefighting equipment, anything that was uh, left at that site, in the burning wreckage that went burning for a full year, the smell of death in the year. Christine Todd Whitless benefited from the Peter Principle, did a lousy job as a Republican governor in New Jersey, and then got kicked upstairs as the EPA chiefess for Bush 43 and said, the air is clear. You don't need masks or Playtex gloves. You don't need uh, hazmat suits or breathing devices. You're free to breathe the air, and so many have died as a result of her malfeasance. Every once in a while, she pops up, and she does an interview. Nobody asks her that question. Why, why did you give clearance that it was okay to breathe that toxic-filled air that has led to so many other men and women suffering, leading to very painful deaths in the aftermath of that attack? To this day, nobody ever asks her that. If she ever appears here on WABC, instead of her complaining, she wants her party back, the Republican Party, from the Trumpers. How about asking her a question that led to the death, the continuing death and suffering of thousands? And as we saw our President Joe Biden at the G20 conference shake the hand of the shake, the house of fraud with their fake, phony, fraudulent mustaches and beards, and the schmatas on their head. When they come here to New York, they wear knockoff Armani suits, they chase trim, they do coke, they drink, they buy up real estate, and then they go back to the sands of Mecca and Medina and say they are the guardians of the Muslim faith. What sanctimonious hypocrites. The House of Fraud funded the attack of 9-11, and they got away with it. And the Bush family allowed them to escape And there has never been a prosecution as members of the Saudi government. We're getting aid and comfort to Al-Qaeda. 
the black sheep of the Osama bin Laden family, the largest construction firm in the Middle East. They said, oh, he was a, he was the outcast of the family. No, he wasn't. And they still haven't resolved that. But up on that Fresh Kills landfill, a guy named Jerry Camerata, who was an appointee of Rudy Giuliani to the Department of Education, dumbest organization ever, and all men, all women of the Giuliani administration uh, had to give 24 hours a day to check up on areas of special significance. One of the areas that Jerry checked up on was the Fresh Kills landfill. Because on top of that landfill, all the debris was brought. Men and women were down on their hands and knees with hazmat suits and little rakes, going through all the particulae. There was a coroner's tent up there. They were trying through DNA to determine as men had been smashed to smithereens, as women had been smashed to smithereens. Just one little particulae that could give comfort to families who had no idea what had happened to their loved one. They kind of knew, but they needed closure. Every day, these men and women worked around the clock. Some were volunteers. Some were uh, assigned there from uniform services. Many of them worked in the worst conditions, as bad as it was in the pit. The world's largest crematorium where fires burned underneath the debris, nonstop burning toxins into the air for about a year. Likewise, back at the Fresh Kills landfill, methane was escaping from underneath the garbage that had been buried for many decades. It's a poison methane gas. How many of those men and women who worked around the clock to go through all the particulae, to go through the wreckage, to go through the girders, to go through everything that was removed from that pit? How many of them suffered? How many of them died? When I pass Angel Circle, which is miles away, not far from where we have that vigil and that blockade around St. John's uh, uh, Villa Academy, where the city is still trying to sneak migrants in and the grandmothers and mothers are keeping them out, just a block away at Fingerboard Road and Highland Boulevard is Angel Circle, where there are the commemoration stones. Per capita, per person, Staten Island lost more in the attack of 9-11 in the aftermath than any other borough, without a doubt. If you have a chance, please go to Angel Circle, right where Fingerboard Road meets Highland Boulevard, and you will see commemoration after commemoration stone of all those who died in the attack of 9-11 from Staten Island and all those who continue to die as a result of the toxic fallout and the malfeasance of Christine Todd Whitless as she resides on her horse farm in central New Jersey, a patrician who is responsible for many needless, needless deaths, needless suffering. Let's never forget And let me tell you, Christine Todd Whitless, I will never forgive you. 77 WABC and Tunnel Towers Foundation presents 9-11, 22 years later. Now, here's Curtis Lewa.
And remember, all day today, WABC joins the Tunnel to Towers Foundation for a special day of tribute remembering 9-11, 22 years later. We'll never forget America's heroes. Please listen all day for special programming. And thank you to the Tunnel to Towers for helping 9-11 victims and their families. I know uh, two Sundays from now, all of us here at WABC will be leading different teams in the Tunnel to Tower run and walk. Obviously, I know most of you cannot run it. It'll be a walk. Uh, if you'd be kind enough to join Team uh, Curtis and Nancy Sliwin and Anthony, my oldest son, will be there with us, our team. You make a contribution, you go on the website, and it's a great organization. I've been there since the very first Tunnel to Tower walk and run where there were just a few hundred people. Now, what did we learn from the attack of the World Trade Center on February 26, 1993, when Bill Clinton was president and Dinkins was mayor. We learned nothing. Because in less than a decade, Al-Qaeda picked up the ball on the initial fumble of Ramzi Youssef and wanted to finish the deed of knocking down both towers, and they did. Osama bin Laden, they had planned this for months, for years, They had observed the initial attack. In fact, it was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, still in Gitmo, cousin of Ramzi Youssef, who brought a more enhanced plan to Osama bin Laden in the caves of Afghanistan, protected by the Taliban while he was tending his goats. And he gave the okay. And you know that as we speak in caves throughout the sub-Saharan African desert, which has accounted for 48% of global terrorism deaths since. That's the southern edge of the vast Sahara, a place that most Americans could not even find on the map. They don't even discuss 9-11 in some schools, and they don't even discuss the geography of the countries where terrorism is brewing. And when I look at the mad dash across the border from Mexico into Texas, And I see the faces of many who have gathered up at the Roosevelt Hotel on the Southern Ring. They are from the sub-Saharan African desert, where most of the terrorism is now, the remnants of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And I question them intensively because I've been to Senegal, to Dakar. I know the area, so right away the North Africans related to me, even though I don't speak French or Arabic. But I detected that a lot of these illegals were coming in from Mauritania. That's in the Western Sahara, right off the Atlantic Ocean. They speak Arabic and French. It's one of the least visited countries in the world. They still have enslaved 20% of their population. The Arabic population has enslaved 20% of the black Mauritanians. It's in a 100% Muslim Sunni country. There are active cells of ISIS and al-Qaeda. They have paid, as they have told me, $8,000 to come to Mexico City, to fly to Mexico City, and then to be uh, brought by coyotes the rest of the way to the border to cross over. If you were in the caves of Mauritania, almost a prehistoric country where slavery still exists, 20% of the population is enslaved. 
Why wouldn't you take another shot at the apple from there? That's one of the countries. Then you have Mali, where they speak Arabic and French. 95% Muslim in that sub-Saharan African strip, where once again, 48% of global terrorism deaths occur at the hands of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. It's the eighth largest country in Africa, 22 million. 70% of the population is under the age of 25. In medieval times, it was at the epicenter of the Islamic faith. In fact, the famous university Timbuktu, the center of Muslim learning, was right in Mali. There are active cells of al-Qaeda and ISIS in Mali that has been reported on both by the European press, the American press, the international press. The next country over in the sub-Saharan African area where 48% of global terrorism deaths take place, and they have come in across the border along with Mauritanians and those Somali, is Niger. 18 hours away by flight, they speak Arabic and French. Four-fifths of their population are Sunni Muslims, Half the population is under 15. It's got the world's highest fertility rate, and there are jihadist insurgencies all over Niger. As you saw, they just toppled their government, and a junta is in charge. Tell me there aren't terrorists who are being given the money to secure a flight 18 hours away to then eventually work their way up from Mexico City to the border and come across. How foolish are we? We've been hit once. We've been hit twice. They're looking to run the table a third time. And we're making it so easy. Our borders are wide open to them. In Chad, a country of 19 million, again, in that sub-Saharan African area where 48% of global terrorism deaths occurred, a population of 19 million, 55% are Sunni Muslim, 41% Christian, and Boko Haram, the terrorist organization, the jihadists from Nigeria, are based there. It's one of the most corrupt and poorest countries in the world. There are armed militias galore. And somewhere in the caves, somewhere in the jungle, somewhere in the desert of Chad, there there are Islamic jihadists planning to come back and finish the job. You can feel it right in the marrow of your bone. History repeats itself. We were asleep at the wheel the first time. After the attack of February 26, 1993, Ray Kelly, the longest-serving police commissioner of New York City, was the customs uh, chairman in the uh, department that handles everything coming in and out of the country. And he admitted that agencies did not share information. He was working for the Clinton administration at that time. We found out about that on 9-11 when we had 17 various intelligence agencies that were sitting on information that could have led to stopping Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. We had tapes that had not been listened to by interpreters that actually gave a roadmap of what Osama bin Laden And the terrorists were intending to do. They were here. They had overstayed their visas. They learned their flight lessons. They were prepared to strike us. 
We had all the information, and none of the secret organizations of our government, from the CIA, the criminals in action, to the National Security Agent, to the FBI, to Treasury, to Secret Service, I can go right on down the list, shared any of the information. And then we promised with Homeland Security we would do that. And we created a special group called ICE on March 1st of 2002 with the express purpose of stopping terrorists from coming in, of looking at everybody crossing our borders and determining determining if they were sex traffickers, narco-terrorists, gang members, members of MS-13 or 18th Street to do a full comprehensive analysis of everybody coming in across the border illegally or overstaying their work visas, their education visas, but just taking advantage of being here and never reporting to Lemigre, Immigration and Naturalization Service. Every day, these men and women, hero men and women, put on bulletproof vests. There are 20,000 of them across the country. In 54 different headquarters throughout the United States, they get what are called detainers. They get a job to go pick up the really bad hombres who have either snuck into our country and had really bad criminal records in their country of origin or have since committed crimes here. We are a sanctuary city in name only. There is no law that says that. We are a sanctuary state in New York. Connecticut is. New Jersey is. And because they're sanctuary states and sanctuary cities, they will not work with ICE. They will not work with Limigra, immigration and naturalization. In fact, if you can, if you can, Justin, give me that cut of Andrew Cuomo as he tries his political comeback. He'll be appearing at the Thomas Jefferson Democratic Club where I grew up on 92nd and Conklin, the most corrupt of the many corrupt Democratic clubs in all of America on Thursday night. When he was governor, he went out of his way to vilify ICE. These are hero men and women who should be honored today for all the work they do to keep us safe. And listen to what this Cretan had to say. Well, wait a second. We'll get it just a momentarily. It's got me so angry that they're trying to revive and resurrect this guy. It's absolutely mind-boggling. Hopefully Justin is getting that cut. You know, the program is most important to him. But then secondarily, you have, in addition to Chad, you have the Sudan. And the capital of Sudan is Khartoum. 46 million people, 97% of them are Sunni. It's called the Kingdom of Kush. Bashir was the dictator for 30 years. Out of my 80 arrests, I was arrested once for blocking the entrance to his embassy when he was coming in with the march of the dictators, the despots, and the tyrants every year to the Security Council at the United Nations. In 1996 to 1998, he was prepared to arrest Osama bin Laden and Zwahiri, the number two in charge of al-Qaeda, that were living right there in Khartoum. And Bill Clinton said no. They escaped to Afghanistan, and then because of the Monica Lewinsky mess, what did Bill Clinton do? He sent those U.S. Tomahawk cruise missiles into an aspirin factory in Khartoum. I want you to listen to Andrew Cuomo as he tries his political comeback. Listen to what he said about ICE, those hero law enforcement 
officers who never get recognized, they will dedicate their lives to protecting us, and all they get is vilified by our elected officials, by this cretin, Andrew Cuomo. New York State is the state that says we will not cooperate with ICE. They're a bunch of thugs. He politicized ICE. They're a bunch of thugs. We said we will sue them if they violate any criminal laws in the state of New York. Did he ever apologize for that? No. Eric Adams, the mayor, used words similar to that. Didn't quite call them thugs. But there is a no cooperation attitude of local authorities with ICE. ICE is on the front cutting edge. That's why they were created in the aftermath of 9-11. How dare they call them thugs? And they do. And they won't cooperate with them. And you won't see them honored today at the ceremonies of 9-11. Nor are they ever honored. So these sanctimonious hypocrites, many of whom were down there like AOC and the rest of them, who claim that they're patriots of America on 9-11. Ask them about ICE that keeps us safe. Why don't we honor ICE? Why do we vilify them? That's the real... 77 WABC and Tunnel Towers Foundation presents 9-11, 22 years later. Now, here's Curtis Slewa. All day today, WABC joins the Tunnel to Towers Foundation for a special day of tribute remembering 9-11. 22 years later, we will never forget America's heroes. Please listen all day for special programming. And thank you to the Tunnel of Towers for helping 9-11 victims and their families. In about two Sundays from now, we'll have the annual uh, Tunnel to Towers uh, run and walk. I'm asking many of you to sign up with our WABC teams. Our personalities are involved. Please go to the website, wabcradio.com, and join especially our team. It's the Sliwa team, myself, my wife, Nancy, and my oldest son, Anthony. I hope to see you all there and contribute to a great cause that I've been involved with since the first gathering when there were only a few hundred, and now there are tens of thousands. But on the line right now is Richard Alice. He's the former FTNY deputy chief and 9-11 veteran seeking to educate the 9-11 survivor community about their entitled health benefits and compensation from the federal government. Richard, uh, because of your expertise at the FTNY in the aftermath of the implosion of both towers, there were a lot of firefighters who were upset because they said that the radios were not in sync with the other emergency service units and the police and that they were left to their own means. Was that true, and has that ever been corrected, uh, Richard? Yeah, at, at the time it was, but uh, there were new radios that were, uh, you know, issued out in the field where this was this is known as a interoperability, where different agencies can speak to each other. Specifically, here we're talking FDNY and NYDD. There were some technical issues that were ongoing. It hadn't been resolved, and unfortunately, uh, at the time, uh, 9-11 occurred, and those radios were kind of useless for us for uh, communicating. And ironically, uh, uh, after uh, the Ground Zero uh, uh, exposure period, when we went back to uh, our regular commands and in training, they created what's known as an air recon chief, and that was one of the first chiefs that were trained for this, 
because my office was in uh, Canarsie, Brooklyn. We were close to Floyd Bennett Field, which is the uh, NYPD aviation unit. And and what that means is it puts, you know, the chief, the FDNY chief would go to Floyd Bennett Field and be in the helicopter. If we had that plan in place at the time of 9-11, there would have been a chief that would have been able to communicate with the troops in the building. So the calls to evacuate, which were never heard, would have clearly been heard. The, the police you know, in the helicopter were able to see structural uh, cracks and damage that was not uh, privy to the uh, FDNY high command at the, at the command post. So it's a, it's a shame. But if those issues now have been resolved, you know, years later, it's just that there's a fortunate timing issue, you know, when we had those radios and when 9-11 occurred uh, in, in 2001. Richard, so it's hard to point a finger at fault. It's just circumstances. Richard, uh, two weeks before the actual attack, I was at the firehouse at Bryan in Seneca, invited my, my very dear friend, Eddie Brown, who went on to become treasurer of the UFA. Actually, yes. saved my life in New Orleans as a guardian angel. I owe my life to him, but... I love Eddie Brown. Yeah, when I was sitting down, you know, they were making their chow for lunch. They had manuals in which there was a gun site. You could see the World Trade Center site. And I said, Eddie, what's this? He goes, you know, they hit this, they hit the World Trade Center site in 1993. We're training all the time, uh, because there are a lot of high rise buildings, uh, whether it's fires or acts of terrorism. You know, we got to get the hoses up. We got to deal with the elevators. He was explaining to me some of the men in the house were explaining to me that they were constantly training in the aftermath of 1993, expecting potentially another attack, and then it happened. Yeah. I, you know, I was a young lieutenant in 1993, so uh, I was there uh, as, as, as a lieutenant. Uh, in, in, in the year just before the, the millennial, in the year 2000, I was uh, brought down to uh, FDNY headquarters by uh, Chief of Department Peter Gancy, uh, one of the victims on uh, 9-11. Uh, we were, uh, when we thought basically every kind of possible emergency that would occur at the change of uh, the year 2000, and I was in meetings constantly, interagencies, we discussed every single kind of possible scenario. And one scenario that was ne- that never came up was an airliner crashing into uh, uh, one of the buildings, you know, whether the World Trade Center or the Empire State Building or some other uh, big building. So, you know, we trained for everything. I don't know how you can uh, prepare for uh, the events that unfolded after the plane crashed through there. We just it's, it's impossible to be able to, uh, to, to to handle such a such a calamity. Well, you know, the interesting thing is uh, the FBI and our National Security Agency had grabbed Ramsey Youssef in the Philippines was doing exactly that planning on on hijacking airliners and crashing them into the World Trade Center. And they never shared that with you guys. They yeah. never did. Yeah. The information yeah. was stifled. How many men, how many people might have been saved in those buildings as a result? Lastly, very quickly, if there are individuals out there who need to know about their entitled health benefits and compensation from the federal government, what what website can they go to? Uh, they can go to uh, uh, 1-800. They could go to victim, victimfund.com. The, the two programs are the World Trade Center Health Program, which is a health, a health 
uh, insurance for uh, victims of 9-11, so anyone that lived or worked in the downtown area. And then the victim uh, compensation fund is the compensatory side. Uh, we, you know, we deal with this on a, on a daily basis. Uh, you know, I work at a law firm, Barrister McGarry, and constantly doing uh, outreach. Uh, we lost a big number here for you to uh, know, uh, Curtis, in case you're not aware. Uh, we lost 343 on September 11th, and a couple of days ago, we lost our 341st uh, member of service uh, due to 9-11 related cancer. So it's a scab that gets pulled off. Over 4,000 people, both responders and survivors, have also perished subsequent to 9-11 due to their exposure. So uh, there's a good law that's in place. People need to know about it. We appreciate that. Thank you.